You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. There's something in us that is prone to wonder from God. I don't know about you, your last like great experience with God. Maybe you're at the conference or a concert or maybe it was here on a Sunday or just devotional time and you just felt this spiritual high. You're on the mountain. You're like, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to follow God. This is going to be great. And then like two days later, it's like, God, where are you? I feel terrible. I'm so depressed. Anybody have that experience? Is it just me? What is that? What do we do with that? All of us, we wander from God. But there is hope, and this is what I want to talk about today. I like this quote by General William Booth. I think we have it here. He was the founder of the Salvation Army. And once he said this to a group of new officers, he says, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is the nature of fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. Isn't that true? So we're going to look at today, how do we keep the fire burning in our spiritual life, in the church, what does it look like to do? Because this relationship with God is just that it's a relationship. God's not going to do your part for you. He's in partnership with you, just like a marriage, right? Sometimes I think some of us, I'm not going to say anyone in here thinks this way, but sometimes we think, wow, coming to Christ, getting saved, that, that was it. That was the whole thing. But that's like the wedding day. That begins the marriage. That begins the relationship with God. And if anyone's here is married or been in a significant relationship, if you don't meet your spouse, if you don't act as a partner, you're not going to have any intimacy. Amen? So this is what it's like with God. He, he actually refers to the relationship with his people as a marriage relationship. He wants to teach us something. So today we're going to look at this through the lens of chapter 13 of Nehemiah. And we're going to ask that question. How do we keep that fire burning? What happened to them? What happens to God people, well, God's people? And what can we do? So let me pray for us and we'll jump into this text. Father, we thank you that at the end of the day, it's up to you. You are a God that is full of grace and you are ready to give and you have your arms wide open. You're scanning the horizon like the Father in Luke 15. And when we come back to you, you run to meet us and you are rejoicing over us and kissing us and hugging us and putting a, a cloak over us. And so God has pray today that all condemnation would leave this room and that I would hear the sweet invitational tone of the Holy Spirit to light those fires again. Teach us how to keep them going. We give you this time. We pray this in your name, Jesus, and by your spirit. Amen. Well, let's look at uh, chapter 13 here. Now, what's going on here? We'll see this a couple verses in. Nehemiah is called back to Babylon. And so he has traveled back from Jerusalem to Babylon. We have a nice map here for you. It's about 55 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so he is gone a minimum of three months, probably more like a year that Nehemiah is gone. And when he comes back, he finds the people in compromise. And he is angry, we'll say. We'll look at how Nehemiah responds and what that has to teach us. So again, he left in chapter 12 and everything was going great. And we put it up here in uh, 13 verses uh, 1 to 3. 
And so on that day, on the day they were celebrating, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned uh, the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from all Israel, all those who were foreign to sin. Now, this is reaching back into the book of Numbers in the New Testament as God's people were coming into the promised land. These two people in particular did not uh, aid uh, the Israelites. And so this is part of God's uh, just retribution for them. And I think on your notes, there's some other information there. If you really want to dig into what does this mean? Why is this important? I'll let you do that on your own. Um, but that, that is kind of where things were left. And now Nehemiah comes back and we're going to look here at four, four things here that we see uh, that he's going to find four particular sins that, we, that Nehemiah is going to find. Compromised leadership, neglect of the temple and the Levites, profaning the Sabbath, and intermarriage with foreigners. And we're going to look at why each of these is so important and why Nehemiah was so angry. So let's just walk through these together. Let's pick it up in verse 4 of chapter 13, looking at compromised leadership. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering and frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So what we're seeing here is, let uh, um, get his name right. Eliashib, the priest, he appointed a family member, Tobiah, who we find out later, or I think earlier in the book, was an Ammonite. So already this is a problem. The Ammonites are not even supposed to be in with the congregation, let alone sleeping in the temple, in one of the grain rooms. And so this is a serious compromise, corrupt leadership, where Eliashib is, is giving preferential treatment. It'd be like if you came home one day and your spouse was like, hey, I gave our bedroom away uh, to this person that's our enemy. We're going to sleep out in the living room. That's kind of that feeling. This, this was, this has, was uh, a room for the temple, for the proper administration of the temple. And this is corrupt leadership he's seeing. So what is, ne uh, well, okay, so verse 6 here. Well, here's what he says about Nehemiah's absence. This is where we learn about this. Verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Okay, so Nehemiah's not around as this is happening. The 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, a king of Babylon, I went to the king. After some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And how did Nehemiah respond? And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So Nehemiah comes back and he is angry. And he's so angry. He goes in there and he, he just throws all of the stuff out on the front lawn. Like, you ever seen those movies where the spouse gets in trouble, they come home and all their stuff is on the front lawn? That's what's happening to Tobiah. Now, here's what I picture is happening with Nehemiah. I've got a picture here you'll probably recognize. He's coming back and he sees this and all of a sudden he goes, let's see. He goes hawkamania on these people. He is just enraged by what is happening. So he goes hawking, he throws all the stuff out in the front lawn. He says, Tobiah, get out of here. And then he goes to town, verse 9. He says, then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers, cleaned that up. And he brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. And Nehemiah is passionate. He's zealous that the temple be used as it was meant to be used for worship. And all the things in chapter 10 that he prescribed that all the people said, yes, we will do that. We're going to do that. 
And so Nehemiah continues, verse 11, So I confronted the officials and I said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Now this is important. Nehemiah is a good leader. He's a courageous leader. And he's not afraid to confront wrong when he sees it. And so as we talk about how do we keep that fire burning, sometimes it's because we need to be more courageous. And when we see wrongs, we need to confront them with others and in our own heart. So Nehemiah is a good, godly, courageous leader, and he is standing up for the things of God. So he goes on, verse 11, and I gathered them together and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah went and brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hannah, the son of Zakor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. So he restores the temple. Not only that, he, he establishes the proper leadership with men who are reliable, trustworthy, Again, he's not showing partiality. He's not giving uh, his friends or his family the best positions. He's doing what is best for the temple. So that was um, the first two. So he's restoring the temple, getting Tobiah the compromised leadership, and restoring the Levites. He's restoring the function of the temple. Let's look at sin number three, neglecting the Sabbath. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine. All this on the Sabbath. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. The Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Underline that. He's emphasizing that. Even in Jerusalem. Verse 17, Then I confronted the nobles. He's confronting the leadership again of Judah. And I said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all the disaster on us in this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath, if you read the Old Testament, it's so important to the identity of the people of God. Of all the peoples in that day, they were the ones that were to take a day off. Now, in that day, in an agrarian society, like you worked all the time because it was your survival. And so taking a day off to Sabbath was an act of faith and trust that was different from the other nations. So this was central to the identity of the people of God. And here they are, yet again, profaning the Sabbath. And we see it all throughout Israel's history. They just keep doing it. And Nehemiah's like, guys, don't you get it? This is the same thing that got us destroyed and exiled in the first place. It's like we don't learn anything. Thankfully, that is all, that's just Old Testament stuff. Nobody here does that, struggles with that. But it's, again, this pattern. How about you? How's the Sabbath for you? Do you take a day off and rest? You know what the Sabbath is for? It's to worship God. It's to enjoy him. It's to enjoy others. It's to live out the, the, the primary commandments, to love God and to love others, trusting that God's going to take care of it. How are we doing with taking a rest? You know, it's good for our souls to do that because God loves us. He cares for us. It's not just a rule saying, look at what you're doing. Why are you working all the time? Why are you stressed out all the time? 
Sabbath is about trusting God. So Nehemiah goes to work. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors be shut and gave orders they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. He's just going to strong arm him here. Again, this is strong leadership. I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath. I love this part. Then the merchants and the, and the sellers of all kinds of, of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They're waiting for the Sabbath so they can engage in business. But I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Don't you love that? From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. So all this was happening. The people, the foreigners are coming. They're ready for trade. And Nehemiah's just done with it. So he goes, Hulk again. We got another picture here. And he says, get out of here. I'm going to lay hands on you. I love that other guy. That works too. And <laughs> she can go that way. He's zealous about this. He's enraged about this. He says, get out of here or I'm going to lay hands on you. And then we get Nehemiah's prayer here. Nehemiah 13, 22. He says, remember this also in my favor. Oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. I don't know if Nehemiah's like conscious is like, oh, maybe I went a little too far with that one. He's saying, God, remember me. Even, even if these people don't listen, remember my heart towards you and your temple and your people. Remember me. He's praying. He's talking to God. Your steadfast love. All right, sin number four, intermarriage. Uh, verse 23, 24. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, I just pictured Nehemiah just walking around. He's just continually exasperated. He's like, what, this also? It's like when you start pull, you know, you start turning on the lights and you know, lifting up the rug, cleaning that, you're like, oh my gosh, this really is dirty. You guys ever get that experience? You actually pay attention to your floor or whatever, and you're like, this is really dirty. And then you're like, spend all day washing it. Is that just me? If you ever like weed your yard, and you just can't ever... Once you start doing it, it's just like, I can't stop. There's just weeds everywhere. It's just me. All right. This is like Nehemiah. He's just like, I can't believe this. This also? Come on, guys. Verse 24. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Now, let me just comment on this, because this is important. By doing this, by intermarrying with those who are not Israelites, they're, what he's describing is they're losing their culture. Now, if we have any, like, second culture kids here, first culture, this happens in your family, right? You come over from a foreign country and your culture's still intact. But then your kids, they're kind of halfway in between your culture and American culture. And then by the third generation, there's almost no regard for the, for the founding culture, right? Well, the culture matters and it really matters to God's people because they were chosen among all the peoples in the earth to do what? To be a blessing to all nations. And we know ultimately that blessing was to come through Jesus Christ. That's why the genealogies are so important in Luke and Matthew and the rest of the Bible. This comes, this was God's promise all through the ages, all the way from Genesis 3.15, all the way into, through this time. So it's important that they retain their identity and culture as God's people. So Nehemiah confronts them, verse 25, and I confronted them and cursed them and beat them and and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to your sons or your daughters, or take daughters for yourselves for your sons. So he's so angry here. Let's go Hulk again. He, he's pulling out people's hairs. He's so angry at them. Now that's, that's a big deal, right? 
Now, why is this so important again? Let's talk about this. Look, he, he, he tells us why in verse 26. He says, Listen, look what happens. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehodia, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, one of the identified enemies of Nehemiah, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. He's just continuing to go on. What is Nehemiah's point? He says, look what happens when you do this. See, God's not like racist. He's not like, don't you know, marry another race. That's not his point. His point is, when you marry an idol worshiper, you, your heart will be drawn away from me. That was the point. And Solomon, of all people, the wealthiest, the most successful, the richest, the guy that had anything he wanted, what was his snare? Foreign women. Wives, they drew his heart away from God and towards foreign gods. Idolatry. And this is detrimental to God's people. So this is really important. That's why Nehemiah is so angry about this. The people don't get it. So let's conclude Nehemiah here. He says, he ends on a prayer. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priest and the Levites. He says, don't, don't forget this. But thus, verse 30, thus I cleansed them from everything, from every for, everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest and Levites in each his work. And I provided the wood offering at the appointed times and the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Those are his last words. So Nehemiah, again, he's like summarizing everything he's come to do. So why is this here? Why is this important? Why does Nehemiah get so angry about this? We've seen some of it. Now, maybe Nehemiah has an angry problem. I don't know. Maybe he needs some counseling. I don't know. But uh, Nehemiah was not sinless. But the way he's interacting with God's people and trying to um, make, keep the temple uh, for what it was meant to do and to preserve God's people and to maintain the Sabbath starts to remind me a lot about another person we read about 500 years later. When Jesus walks into the temple and gets angry, he goes hulk on the people. And he's turning over tables and he's whipping people. I think we got a picture here for you. Jesus the Hulk. Maybe we do. Next one. We got a picture? Somewhere there. Next one. There we go. Keep it with a comic book theme here. Now, why was Jesus so mad about this? It's the same reason, right? John tells us, if we go back one, John tells us, don't make my uh, father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus is zealous for, for God's house. Matthew tells us this. Here's why. My house, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. See, the temple was the place where God's spirit, his presence dwelt. It was the place where people were to meet God, receive forgiveness of sin, atonement. It was to be a house of prayer for the nations. And the people in Jesus' day had once again turned it for trade and profit and commerce. Something that's very strong in our day. Because they were worshiping another God. 
wealth, and security. The God of mammon. So I think Jesus, or rather Nehemiah is a picture of Jesus and his zeal for the things of the Lord. That what drives his anger. Because the thing about anger is this. Anger reveals what you're passionate about. Anger reveals what you really care about. So think about for a minute, what makes you angry? And then dig a little bit and say, why, what is it about that that makes me angry? What is that revealing about what I care about most? My time, my comfort, my convenience. Nehemiah cared about the things of the Lord. He had zeal for him. Because the truth is, God has zeal for us. We read in James 4, verse 5, that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This isn't a fickle, you know, middle school kind of jealousy. This is a deep, passionate, fiery, fierce love for people, just as if your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend if you were to come home and find that they were involved with someone else, what would that feel like? You've got to sit in that feeling because that's how God feels when we go to other gods. It breaks his heart because he has such affection for us. Why were these three things so important? Was it really about the temple, about having this beautiful structure? No, it was about worshiping God, having a relationship with God, being reconciled to God. It was God's plan to bring his people back to him. That's why we had the temple and the whole sacrificial system because we, we messed it up. We sinned, we ran away. But God pursues us and pursues us and makes a way. Again, why was the Sabbath so important? This was our time to, to show God we trust you. Let's spend time together. Let's have a date. Let's enjoy one another. And again, why was the intermarriage thing so important? Literally, because our hearts would be drawn away from God. It breaks God's heart. So he continues to make a way, to make a way, to make a way. And of course, we know that Jesus is the way, the true temple, the one who we have true rest in, the one that came from the line of kings of Judah. Jesus was the final path back to God, his final solution for sin. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's all about God's love for you and his love for his name, for who he is. That's what this is all about. That's why there's wrath of God, because he loves his creation. He hates sin. And here's the thing. He will stop at nothing to have all of you. He will stop at nothing to have your whole heart. He might send a Nehemiah into your life to confront you and to mess some things up because he loves you so much. You might be going through some hardship right now because God wants to get your attention 
Say, come back to me. I don't know about you, but for me, it takes like hardship for me to come back to God and say, oh, okay, you are right. I want to spend time with you. Because there's something in us. We're just prone to wonder. But you need to know that God will stop at nothing. He will keep pursuing until he has your whole heart. And that's actually really good news for us. So, what do we do? Maybe you're dry right now spiritually. Maybe you're not experiencing God a lot and you're wondering why. Nehemiah came in because he wanted to restore the temple, the sacrificial system, the Sabbath, the people of God. And in the temple, there was this duty of the priest and it was to keep the fire on the altar burning day and night. It was to never go out. Leviticus 6, 12, and 13. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn on it the fat of the peace offering. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So that's the call for us. How do we keep the fire burning in our heart? Well, God shows us. We, God, God is so generous. Like, he just shows us so many ways. All we do is think about a real fire. What do you have to do to keep a real fire going? You got to put wood on it. Maybe some lighter fluid. If you really need some help. You got to remove the ash. You got to make sure it can breathe. You got to tend to it. You got to tend to the fire. See, God says, that's what it looks like. How do you tend to the fire of your heart? How do you tend to the fire of your heart? How do you keep that fire burning? First thing, three things. We've already kind of touched on these. Good, godly, courageous leadership. We need leaders in the church that will stand for God and won't compromise in leadership, won't compromise on theology, won't compromise on who God is. But here's the thing. Nehemiah was always going to fail. Because no human leader is ever going to be enough for us. I mean, this is a part of the problem, I think, in Western Christianity and American culture in particular. We get these celebrity pastors and we attach to them. And, and somehow, because we're a part of this great ministry, we feel good about ourselves. And when that leader falls, we don't know what to do. Our, our worship, our worship of God, our, our leadership is never meant to fall on, on one man except for the one man, Jesus Christ. And the good news about Jesus is he is with each one of you. He will be your leader if you will come to him. He is the, alone the Lord and Savior. So maybe for, uh, for some of us, is turning away from that, that pastor that we get so much out of is so good He's not Jesus. Jesus is so available to you. If we take Sabbath, we take the time. Which is the third point here. Really good godly leadership starts with you. You have to lead yourself in this. No one's going to do it for you. God won't do it for you. You got to lead yourself. Will you be as relentless with your temple, which houses the presence of God if you're a believer, to remove any compromise? So the fire will keep burning. 
the intimacy with the Lord. And it begins with self-leadership. So that's the first thing, the first log we can throw on there. Good, godly, courageous leadership. Number two, what I just called Godward intentionality because I needed three Gs. Godward intentionality. How do we do that? Again, God gives us all these examples. How do you do it with a friend or your spouse? You got to spend time with them. You got to be vulnerable with them. You got to share yourself with them and receive from them. You'll be intimate with them. Mentally intimate. What are you learning? What's God teaching you? What do you find fascinating? What are you feeling? Your emotions. What are you feeling? Why do we feel that way? How are you feeling? How did you feel when I said that? Spiritually, can we pray together? Can we read the word together? What is God doing in each of our lives, in our marriage? And of course, physically. You need intimacy with your spouse to have a, to keep that fire going, right? It's the same thing with God. I mean, it's no, it's no accident that God talks about his relationship with his people as a, as a husband and a wife. He is our bridegroom king. So do we spend time with him? I mean, I, I think the enemy, the devil is just so intent on keeping us from doing that, especially in this culture. We don't have time. Even when we do it, it doesn't do anything, so we stop. Keep tending to that fire. Keep tending to that fire. See, I think prayer is that lighter fluid. You just got to stick with it. You just got to stick with it day by day. And over time, you'll look back and you go, wow. Wow, look, look, what's, look what's different. We got to stick with it day by day, just inch by inch. We move forward on this. And God is faithful. And the last one here, God inflamed spread. And what I mean is, um, you share God's love with others. Loving God and loving others. I mean, nothing, this isn't new. I, I typically don't say anything new, which is good. Because we just need to live this out. When your fire starts to burn with God, it will start to spread. It's like a forest fire. It's like a wildfire. I love what John Wesley said. People would ask him, what do you do? I mean, John Wesley, right, this great uh, revivalist preacher preached to tens of thousands, had, I mean, just tens of thousands, part of the great revival, second great awakening, I think it was. I said, how are you so successful? How do you do this? I loved his answer. He said, here's what I do. I catch fire for God and people watch me burn. I catch fire for God and people watch me burn. What if each one in this room tended to the fire of the intimacy with God and caught fire and people started to watch you burn? Maybe that's what evangelism really is about. Being intentional. Let me share this fire with you. This is how we keep, these are three ways we can keep the fire burning. And I really believe if, if we did this day by day, over time, and we caught fire, well, this is what started the early church. Something crazy would happen. God would move. 
So I will, um, let's see how I'm doing on time here. Yeah, I will close with the same quote I started with. General William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, once said to a group of new officers, I want you young men always to bear in mind that it is the nature of fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fred and the ashes removed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you provide the fuel. You provide the fire. You make it burn by the white hot love that you have for us. We thank you that at the end of the day, we actually don't have to muster that up. We don't have to try harder. All we have to do is sit still and ask and receive and surrender and open your word and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to move. God, I pray that you would move in us if we're struggling with that. Surprise us this week. Help us to stick with it day by day, inch by inch, and over time, that we would see your great blessing. We pray this in your name, Jesus, by your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com. 